Welcome to God's Messenger Lighthouse Podcast. This is your host, Brother Scott Messenger, bringing you Chapter 6 from the book, Jacob the Shazer, Forgive Your Enemies, by Janet and Jeff Binge, part of the Christian Heroes Then and Now series by YWAM Publishing. Chapter 6, Bailout. It was exactly one in the afternoon when the bat reached the Japanese island of Honshu. Navigator George Barr ran his hands over a succession of maps trying to locate the exact spot of coastline they were about to fly over. When he had ascertained their position, he relayed instructions to Will, and the B-25 began banking to the south. The city of Nagoya, their target, was located about 300 miles southwest of Tokyo. To reach it, the bomber began to climb up to about 7,000 feet in altitude to cross a range of mountains. As the plane climbed through a bank of clouds, Jake was surprised to see people living high on the mountains. The plane was flying close enough to the mountains that from his perch in the nose of the bomber, Jake could see people on the ground. When they saw the plane pass overhead, the people stopped and waved. Jake could clearly make out the faces of children. He chuckled when an old man with a gray beard threw his walking stick to one side and dived to the ground as the plane flew over him. Obviously, the people below thought that the plane was one of their own Japanese bombers. Jake fervently hoped that they would drop their load of bombs in Nagoya and be out of harm's way before anyone realized the truth that they were Americans. As they crossed the mountains, the weather on the other side was sunny, and the bat basked in the bright Saturday afternoon as it began to descend and close in on Nagoya. Jake looked down, and he frowned. The terrain below did not look much like the maps they had spent so many hours poring over on the USS Hornet. Still, Jake trusted that George knew how to do his job and get them to their bombing targets. Within minutes, George's voice came on the intercom. Get ready to drop bombs at 500 feet. I see the target, George told Jake. Jake looked out the front of the nose, and there was their first target, a group of oil storage tanks. The plane continued its steady pace as Jake lined up the target in his bomb sight. As they passed over the storage tanks, he pulled the release and dropped two of the 500-pound incendiary bombs from the plane's bomb bay. After the bombing run, Will banked the B-25 in a turn, and Jake craned his neck to look back and see the damage the bombs had done. The oil storage tanks were in flames, though they hadn't yet exploded. Jake expected to see a massive fireball erupt at any moment. He could see smoke and flames rising from two other locations in the city, and he knew this could mean only one thing. Planes 14 and 15 had also made it to Nagoya and dropped their bombs. As they climbed to line up on their next target, Jake could see plane 14 off to the right below them. The bat had made better time than he'd thought on the flight from the Hornet. Anti-aircraft fire filled the air near plane 14, which was headed 
south and flying away from Nagoya as fast as it could. Anti-aircraft fire was now also being fired at the bat as it lined up on the next target. Jake soon realized that the smell of acrid smoke that had invaded the plane was not from the burning fuel tanks, but from the shots being fired at them from the ground. Will brought the B-25 around and flew the length of a long, low industrial building below. The building was an aircraft factory, and as they flew over it, Jake released the last of the incendiary bombs, which crashed through the roof of the building and exploded in sheets of flame. With their targets hit, it was time to leave. Will banked the plane sharply as they turned to the south and prepared to follow planes 14 and 15 away from Japan and out over the ocean. Soon they were skimming low over water as they fled from Nagoya. Jake manned the 30 caliber machine gun in front of him. A small fishing boat loomed on the bay below, bobbing in the calm water. A fisherman, unaware of what had just happened on land, waved at the oncoming plane. Jake, trigger-happy to return fire at someone, fired off several rounds from the machine gun at the fishing boat. He wasn't a good shot, and the bullets missed the boat as the man stopped waving and dived for cover. Jake laughed as he fired, as much out of relief as anything else. The men had completed their mission. They had dropped their bombs on the right targets and evaded enemy anti-aircraft fire. Yet Jake, like the other members of the crew, knew the worst was still ahead of them. No one could forget that they had been burning more fuel because of the hole in the plexiglass nose and the sun over Nagoya had been left behind and the weather was rapidly deteriorating. Two Japanese Zero fighter planes gave chase, pulling up behind the B-25, but Will climbed into a bank of gathering clouds and soon lost them. They soon resumed their low altitude, skimming along above the sea, but the glistering calm water below them soon turned into a raging gray mass as they headed along the southeastern coast of Japan, before striking out over the East China Sea for China. Along the way, they lost sight of planes 14 and 15. They were now on their own. It was foggy, and darkness was descending when they reached the Chinese coast. George worked fervently to locate their position on the maps in front of him. North China and most of the Chinese coastal area were under Japanese control, and they wanted to be sure they landed their plane in friendly, free China. An hour later, George announced that they were over Chu Chao Lishui, one of the Doolittle Raiders' rendezvous sites. Will circled the area, calling repeatedly on the radio for anyone below, but he got no answer. The fog cleared a little, and Jake could make out a small town below them, but he could see no airfield. They had no choice but to fly on, hoping for a break in the weather and a landing strip somewhere farther inland. An hour later, the low fuel light flashed on in the B-25. Jake busied himself, staring below, hoping to see some sign of friendly territory. Will circled above a town 
at an altitude of 3,000 feet looking for a runway, but there wasn't one. It's got to be Nun Cheng, George told Jake over the intercom. Will says, get ready to jump. Jake remembered that in a briefing back on the USS Hornet, they had been warned that the Japanese most likely controlled the area around Nanchang, but with no fuel left in the plane's tanks, after 13 hours aloft, they had no choice but to leave the B-25 bomber behind. They would know soon enough whether the Japanese or the friendly Chinese held the area below. George was the first to bail out. Jake watched as he dropped out the forward hatch into the darkness. Then it was Jake's turn to jump. He slid his pistol, knife, and ration packets into the pockets of his leather jacket. As he edged toward the open hatch, he tried to recall all he had been taught during Army Air Corps training about making a parachute jump. At that time, the closest he had come to making a real parachute jump was lowering himself with his parachute through the hatch of a bomber parked on the ground and dropping to the tarmac. But this time, he was 3,000 feet above China, and his survival depended on his following the steps he had been taught in training. He checked the tension on the harness of his parachute, made sure the handle of the ripcord was free, and then slowly began lowering himself out the hatch. But no sooner had Jake dropped his legs through the hatch that the wind caught him, or caught them and pressed them back against the fuelage of the plane. In fact, the wind pressed them against the plane so hard that Jake had to push with all his might on the door frame to get out of the hatch. And suddenly he felt himself slip free. He began falling into the darkness. Above him, Jake could see the B-25, and when it had passed over him, he pulled on the ripcord of his parachute. Moments later, he felt an upward jerk. He knew his parachute had properly opened. He could hear the drone of the bomber's engines trail away above him. Jake was now totally on his own, falling through the darkness over a country in which he had never been or before set foot. He felt utterly alone. Jake was enveloped not only in dark darkness as he descended toward the ground, but also in dense fog and rain. He could see nothing and had no way of telling how close he was to the ground. Then suddenly his body crashed into the earth with a jolt, and Jake was aware that he was sprawled out and face down. After many hours in the air, Jake was back on land, but it wasn't dry land. Rain was pouring down, and he could feel mud squelching through his fingers. Jake rolled over and got to his knees. It was pitch black as he fumbled around and unlatched his parachute. Then, as his eyes adjusted to the darkness, he realized he was kneeling on top of a mound, and there were other mounds of about the same size all around him. Then it dawned on him he had landed on top of a grave. He chuckled to himself. Of all places to land, he had dropped down right on top of the final resting place of a Japanese or a Chinese man. Farther out, beyond the mounds, he could see pools of blackness that rippled in the wind. Remembering back to their briefing on the Hornet, Jake concluded that these must be flooded rice paddies. Aware that his 
four crewmates must have all jumped by now. Jake slid his pistol out of his pocket and shot it into the air. He listened for a response, either a shout or a gunshot, but he could hear only eerie silence. Suddenly, loneliness again overcame him. Had everyone else survived the jump? Would they strike out in the same direction and meet up? If the Japanese occupied the territory, how long would it be before Japanese soldiers found him? Or by some miracle, had they bailed out over a Chinese stronghold? Jake scrambled wearily to his feet. As he stood up, he flinched. Stabbing pain shot through his chest and arms. He steadied himself and took a deep breath. More pain. He took shallow breaths as he unzipped his jacket and felt inside. The pain became unbearable as he felt his ribcage. It was obvious to him that he had broken several ribs when he collided with the ground. He carefully zipped up his jacket and pulled the parachute toward him. He then pulled the knife from his jacket pocket and cut off a length of the parachute fabric. This would give him a little protection from the rain. With the silk fabric draped over his head and body, Jake stood up and began walking. It didn't much matter in which direction he went. He was surrounded by rice paddies. He sloshed through the mud, bending slightly as he went to lessen the pain of his ribs. Jake was thoroughly soaked by the time he came to a tiny building about the size of a broom cupboard. Inside, he found some in incense holders and concluded that it was probably some kind of shrine. He cleared out the holders and backed inside. The building was just wide enough for him to get in and sit down with his legs pulled up to his chest. The building was not comfortable, but it was dry. Within minutes of sitting down, Jake was sound asleep. He did not wake up until the sun was up the following morning. When he awoke, it took him several seconds to remember what had happened to him the night before and where he was. Somewhere in the dark, stormy night, Jake had lost his rations, and he had nothing to answer the growl in his stomach. Gingerly, he pressed his hands against either side of the shrine and pulled himself to his feet. He stepped outside, getting his first glimpse of China in the daylight. The countryside was lush and green, and Jake could see a track leading up to the left. He waded through a rice paddy towards it. He stepped up to the track and started walking. The mud dried and caked to his body in uniform as he walked along. His heart thumped as he saw two men coming in the opposite direction. One was carrying a bucket. As they got closer, Jake waved. Soon they were just feet apart, and Jake started talking slowly. He pointed to the U.S. insignia on his jacket and tried to communicate that he was American. The men looked at each other, said nothing, and moved on. Jake found the men's behavior odd, but it happened again, and then again. No one seemed the least bit interested in a strange white man, filthy from head to toe, walking through rice paddies. Jake came to a small stall where an old man sat selling colored eggs and vegetables. He felt sure that he would make progress now. He gestured for a pencil and paper and drew a picture of a Chinese insignia and a Japanese insignia on a page and then drew a question mark. 
The old man shrugged and went back to picking bugs off a cabbage. Jake could see the old man was not going to be any help either. He walked on, wondering whether people wouldn't uh, wondering whether people wouldn't talk to him because they were afraid of being punished by the Japanese or because this was Chinese held territory and no one was interested in the war. He walked past small Chinese houses and was surprised to see that not only people but also chickens and pigs all lived together inside the ramshackle homes. The farther Jake walked, the more invisible he felt. No one smiled at him or nodded in recognition. It was as if Jake were a ghost to them, albeit a very muddy and hungry ghost. He passed a cluster of houses with several soldiers standing around. Two of them were washing clothes in a ditch. Jake hesitated for a moment. Should he approach them or not? He remembered the advice about telling a Japanese person from a Chinese person by how spread out their toes were. But in military boots, he thought glumly, all toes are equal. Because he did not, or he didn't want to risk approaching the soldiers, he walked right past the houses. No one shouted at him or tried to intervene. As Jake continued walking, he realized that he would have to make some kind of move towards someone, as no one was going to initiate any move toward him. His heart began to thump wildly as he saw another house in the distance. This, he decided, was the one he was going to approach for help. He felt for the pistol in his pocket, checked the ammunition clip, and made sure that a bullet was in the firing chamber. Within minutes, Jake was standing at the open doorway of the house. Chickens squawked around his feet. Jake took a deep breath and stepped inside. Sitting at a table were two soldiers playing a game several little or local children words came out of jake's jake in a rush along with a jumbled attempt at sign language he pointed to himself and said american and mimicked a plane flying overhead then he pointed to the older of the two soldiers china or japan he asked china the soldier replied but instead of relief at the answer jake felt a sense of dread Something was not right. His right hand curled around the trigger of his pistol. He had seven bullets left. Jake backed up toward the door when suddenly he was aware of a commotion outside. He turned his head to see ten soldiers armed with bayonets, pistols, and swords gathered in the yard. China or Japan, he yelled, aware of the desperation in his voice. China, one of them yelled back. Jake smiled and gestured for them to come in. There was nothing else he could do unless he knew for sure they were Japanese, and then there were more of them than bullets in his pistol. The soldier slapped Jake on the back and smiled at him. Through the language barrier, Jake could tell they were trying to joke with him and make him feel at ease, but he could feel the sweat beating on his forehead. After a few minutes, the soldiers gestured for Jake to come with them, and they left the house together and set out down the road. After about five minutes, they stopped for a moment, and Jake turned to find a bayonet pointed against his back. Then, as if on cue, all the soldiers pointed their weapons at him, and one of them reached into Jake's jacket pocket 
and pulled out his forty-five pistol. Then they walked on as if nothing had happened. Jake still wasn't sure whether he was in the hands of friends or foes. He could imagine the Chinese not wanting to escort someone who was armed and did not understand a word they said. He could also imagine the Japanese tricking him into walking with them. Which scenario was the right one? He wished he knew. Eventually the group reached a camp where a friendly officer greeted them. A good sign, Jake concluded. Another officer came outside. Please do be inside with us, he said in fractured English. Jake smiled weakly and entered the house, knowing that the next few minutes could determine whether he lived or died. Next time, Chapter 7, Captured. This book and many others from this series can be found at this website, www.ywampublishing.com, and their phone number is 800-922-2143. And this again has been the book, Jacob the Shaver, Forgive Your Enemies by Janet and Jeff Binge, part of the Christian Heroes Then and Now series from YWAM Publishing. Again, next time, Chapter 7, Captured.